0: Hi, everyone. You're listening to the New Books Network. This is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery podcast. My name is Lucas Rickert, and welcome to you all. Today on the menu is psychedelics. I'm so lucky to be joined by Dr. Danielle Gifford. She's an assistant professor of sociology at the St. Louis College of Pharmacy, where she focuses on uh, the politics of health and social movements. She has written for such journals as Gender and Society, Sociology Compass, MedEd Portal. But we are here to talk about her new book. Uh, her book's called Acid Revival, the Psychedelic Renaissance and the Quest for Medical Legitimacy, which was published by the University of Minnesota Press just uh, a couple months ago. Um, so welcome, Danielle.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: It's so good to talk to you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your backstory, and, and uh, how you got interested in studying LSD?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm a medical sociologist, um, and so I'm really interested in studying uh, health and medical science, especially as it relates to knowledge production, and I've always been really drawn towards empirical cases where something is missing or where there's uh, yeah. absence of knowledge production. Uh, And in science studies, we call this non-knowledge or scientific ignorance, and not in the sense of, like, public ignorance of science, but in the sense of, you know, what topics aren't scientists studying, Uh, why is that the case, and then what are the consequences of that lack of knowledge? Uh, So the nerdy answer to your question about uh, how I got interested in studying LSD, uh, and especially the medical history of LSD, is that this trajectory of Psychedelic drug research is a really great case for studying the production of non knowledge, Um, you know, because psychedelic science broadly and research on its therapeutic applications specifically uh, was really booming in the mid 20th century. And then for a variety of reasons, it sort of fades away for a while, only to reemerge seemingly out of nowhere, but (laughs) as the result of a lot of concerted efforts among a lot of people. Uh, it's come back in recent years. So it's a really good case to answer some of these questions about, you know, why did psychedelics become this kind of forbidden knowledge? And how are researchers trying to fill that gap in knowledge today? So, you know, especially what are their strategies to legitimate this area of inquiry? And, you know, of course, beyond mere academic curiosity, it's, it's a sexy topic, so to speak. Um, it's really fun and interesting. And I really enjoyed all the research I did for the book, and I really enjoyed inserting psychedelic puns wherever I could, Um,
0: although
1: although hopefully not ad nauseum for readers. So uh, that was sort of my entryway into this topic.
0: Well, before we continue, I just have to say that uh, we totally embrace nerdy answers here, Danielle. So (laughs) to be as nerdy as you want. Oh, get ready. Uh, Okay. All right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so you already alluded to the fact that there's a lot of discussion about psychedelics these days uh, in 2020. Um, So some people have called this moment a psychedelic renaissance. I've talked to some other authors on this podcast about the psychedelic renaissance. You're calling it a psychedelic revival. So how does your book uh, add to sort of the new histories, new stories about LSD?
1: Right. So the book is called Acid Revival. And as a quick aside, I actually originally wanted to title it The Rip Van Winkle Science uh, because I heard so many researchers refer to themselves and the field as Rip Van Winkle, uh, just like the story, which I thought was a really smart way to characterize the ebb and flow of the field. So the way in which, like Rip Van Winkle, it sort of goes to sleep, and then it wakes up a couple decades later in this really new world, and they're trying to navigate their way around it. Um, The problem is that I also titled my dissertation that, The Rip Van Winkle Science, and I learned the hard lesson that book publishers will not let you use the same title. So that's my free advice to grad students who are listening. Not that I would charge, but the free advice is is, uh, don't. if you find the perfect title for dissertation, just save it for the book. Um, But I I do like the title I ended up with. Um, But the book isn't just about the revival, um, and there's a strong historical conversation happening as well. Um, But to get back to your original question, so how does the book add to the story of LSD? well, there have been a lot of stories told about LSD, and I'm not the only person or the first person to unpack the history of psychedelic therapy. But what I think I do differently in this book is that I'm telling a story about a story, essentially. Um, and I'm not interested in determining like what's the objective truth of what actually happened with psychedelic science, like objectively speaking. Like if we could ever determine that, like what happened, um, I'm much more interested in analyzing what the people doing this work think happened, right? So how they're trying to make sense of the history of their field and then how the way they make sense of it is shaping what they do today. And, you know, one of the questions I asked the researchers who I interviewed was just simply, well, what do you think happened with psychedelic science? It was this really blossoming area of inquiry and then it just, you know, died, so to speak. Yeah. And I was really struck by the consistency of their answers, which was just, is Timothy Leary, right? That Timothy Leary destroyed the legitimacy of our field, um, and Leary's probably the most infamous psychedelic researcher. So he started his psychedelic career as a psychologist at Harvard in the '60s. He conducted a bunch of really controversial experiments with psilocybin, and then he famously morphed into this pied piper of psychedelics telling this whole generation of young people to turn on with psychedelic drugs. Um, So in the minds of today's researchers, Timothy Leary really messed things up for psychedelic in science. And so this is a story they tell to make sense of what happened in the situation that they find themselves. So what the book really does is it's a story about the haunting presence of the past and a story about how the misbehavior of an individual scientist had like really contaminating effects. So essentially the book is kind of a, a story of how one rotten apple spoiled the whole barrel for psychedelic science in their mind. Mm-hmm. And I'm not taking their story, the stories that these researchers tell at face value. I never say they're wrong. I never say they're right. Uh, I'm pretty explicit about that. Um, but the thing about stories is, they're not often accurate depictions of reality. But as a sociologist, what's really interesting to me is that stories can tell us a lot of things about how people interpret their social worlds and then how they take those constructions of reality and then it influences what they do. Um, So again, it's not about if the story is true, but it's how the way it's told has real effects on the unfolding of the revival. And that's where I think the book adds a new layer to the history of LSD especially in medical science. It's telling a history but partly through the eyes of people in the field and it's showing the effects of those stories on the, you know, so-called renaissance.
0: Yeah, I got a real I got a real um good vibe off the way you balanced uh the basically the past this history and then also these interviews that you've done. You so how many interviews did you do roughly?
1: Uh, so I interviewed 40 psychedelic researchers and I, um, I approached, I, like, I conceptualized psychedelic researchers pretty broadly. So I wasn't just interviewing the, you know, mostly psychiatrist principal investigators of these studies, but yeah. I also spoke with psychologists and therapists who were sitting with patients in these clinical trials during the drug sessions. Um, you know, staff members at major psychedelic research organizations who help design research protocols, get approval, recruit patients and, and fundraise. So I had a pretty broad conceptualization, but I ended up interviewing 40, um, which it's not a, a really big field. So um, a lot of times when I talk to people, they they'd say, well, it sounds like, you know, you've, you're probably going to get to talk to everyone. I couldn't mm-hmm. tell them who I talked to though because it's confidential. Sure, um, but I yeah. got a I got a pretty good sample of that particular population.
0: Yeah, so you brought up Timothy Leary. Um, let's focus on him for a little bit. Um, that you, know, you bringing him up and referring to uh, how he's used deployed by some of these psychedelic researchers is it, pretty fascinating to me. And, so he he features really prominently in your book, um, and that's probably not surprising for people who know this history of psychedelics in a way. But can you tell us how you uh, how he fits into your story more specifically? How maybe how he was used rightly or wrongly by some of uh, some of the actors that you interviewed?
1: Yeah, yeah, he really. He- Does appear prominently, doesn't he? (laughs) Um, You know, as I as I mentioned, um, the book is based on my dissertation. And when I defended my dissertation, one of my committee members joked, "You know, there's a lot of Leary in here," Um, and it's and it's true. So when I was revising the dissertation into a book, I really tried my best to make it less about Leary. Although, of course, I do talk about him and his actions. But the point of the book and why I talk about Leary the way I do is to think about him and what he symbolizes for these researchers. And I argue that he symbolizes uh, what I call this figure of the impure scientist. And the impure scientist is this kind of bad expert who doesn't respect boundaries and even actively and intentionally defies the boundaries of science. So I'm thinking of things like this separation between subjectivity on the one hand and objectivity on the other. Um, And so in defining those boundaries, the idea is that the impure scientist actually has a polluting effect on a scientific field because you know his or her actions actually contaminate the legitimacy of other people in that field. Uh, so when I would interview contemporary researchers, they would use words like poisoned, polluted, contaminated, tainted when talking about Leary's effects on the field. And so to contain that threat, that they believe Leary poses, and to offer an antidote to that poison, so to speak, uh, they perform as the anti-Leary. And so the Mm. anti-Leary is actually a phrase that I would hear researchers themselves use. Um, Another phrase that was bounced around a lot was that they're sober scientists. So in other words, they're just the antithesis of Leary, right? Because if the story is constructing the decline as a problem of an impure scientist, that, that Leary ruined it. Then it logically follows from their story that we'll just do the opposite. And if we do the opposite of what Leary did, it's going to be fine this time. Mm -hmm. Um, But the problem becomes that these boundaries between impure and sober scientists is really porous because that's the thing about boundaries, right? They're not given, they're constructed. And the ways that we draw lines in the sand between this thing or that thing uh, is the result of struggle. And those lines are subject to change. Um, so this means that boundaries are always in flux, um, and they're always, like I said, really porous. And the way that I saw this happening in psychedelic science is that these researchers would constantly be constructing Leary as an impure scientist. They try to push away from his polluting influence and enact this sober scientist persona. But at the same time, they would still constantly draw on a lot of his same practices to do this research. So they would. You know, tell me that, okay, well, Leary had this really loosey goosey approach to conducting psychedelic research. So then we're, as contemporary researchers, going to do the opposite. We're going to, you know, follow, you know, this hypothesis testing model of how to do science, and now we're going to get legitimacy. But then at the same time, uh, they actively incorporate some of Leary's ideas into their current research. Uh, One of the biggest ones being set and setting. Um, Yeah, yeah, which is basically an idea that the drug experience is influenced by more than the drug, right? So it's not just insert psychedelic into body, have a spiritual epiphany or like some kind of automatic reaction Um, that the experience is really contingent on a variety of factors. So how do you feel when you go into the drug experience? What motivated you to do it? who are you taking it with? What environment is it in? Um, and so Leary is credited with coining that phrase, sentence setting. setting. Um, but before he entered the research scene, there were a lot of people who would try to optimize therapy sessions um, to have the best sentence setting. So um, they would prepare patients uh, for the drug session, telling them, you know, here's what you might expect to experience. Uh, when they actually would take the drug, Patients would do it in these really comfortable living room-like spaces. There'd be flowers and paintings. They'd listen to music. They could lay on a couch. There would be a therapist there to support them, but not be imposing. Uh, and so this is what researchers do today. So they they actively incorporate uh, methodologies that Leary and other first wave researchers would use. Uh, by first wave, I mean researchers uh, doing this in like the fifties and sixties. Uh, so they they integrate those methodologies with randomized controlled trial methodologies that have a lot more scientific currency today. So they're kind of a little like Leary and a little not like him in the end.
0: So I got to ask, one thing that jumped out at me in the book was sort of the performativity element of being a not Leary, of being mm-hmm. an anti-Leary. Can you say a little bit about that? I mean, in the sort of, even in the realm of fashion. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. That really struck me about um, the anti-Leary that so much of it revolved around uh, how you dress and how you look. Um, and the one thing that a lot of them would say is, you know, you got to wear suits and ties, which also reveals sort of the gendered component of, you know, both the the impure and the sober scientist, right? That there's these gender undertones to it, um, which I write about in the book as well. But yeah. To gain credibility as a scientist, it's not just, you know, designing a study that's double blind, that's randomized, that's approved by the FDA, but it's also about what do you look like when you're doing this research? What do you look like when you're presenting your results? Like, do you have dreadlocks and look like a hippie? And not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but they know they're not going to be taken as seriously by their colleagues as if they're like, you know, have a short haircut, they're wearing, you know, glasses and, Mm -hmm. you know, they have their their ties on. Right. So there is an actual like fashion performance that goes into it as well. But even just a performance like, you know, saying the scientific names for these drugs as opposed to talking about like, hey, we, we, (laughs) we gave a bunch of patients shrooms and they were tripping on them, you know, like they're more careful in how they select their language because they have to be because jargon has, you know, that scientific jargon has way more legitimacy uh, than other terminology. And that's what they're trying to get right now is they're trying to build legitimacy.
0: I mean, I couldn't help but think that, you know, investors are not going to slap down millions of dollars um, when everyone's wearing tie dye and have yeah. sort of unruly facial hair. And again, I don't think that any of that is wrong. I, I mean, I've had beards and so on, but the the look and the feel matters for uh, when something is going more corporate or more legitimate. Can we back up a little bit? Um, Yes. I know we got in the weeds real quickly with Leary because I find him so fascinating. I know. Can I just ask you to maybe tell us a little bit about um, sort of the overview of the book, its structure, or how you built it uh, in sort of... And, you know, if you're an architect.
1: <laughs> that's a fun way to think about it. Who's yeah. <laughs> an architect? Okay. Um, makes me feel like George Costanza, like I'm trying to claim. <laughs>
0: anyway,
1: that's an I don't assignment. think of
0: you like Costanza, by the way. <laughs>
1: I'm not claiming I'm a marine biologist, but uh, yeah, so the book is partly structured to reflect my impulse towards repetitiveness um, (laughs) Thanks to uh, having obsessive-compulsive disorder and I say this because each chapter is laid out uh, More or less kind of in the same way it follows a very similar organization and the organization is that each chapter uh, focuses on a major legitimacy crisis that I identified in uh, the history of psychedelic therapy. Uh, So crises like the moral panic surrounding recreational LSD use, uh, the rise of the hippie counterculture, self-experimentation with psychedelic drugs by researchers. Um, So each chapter covers this crisis. And the way I kind of weave Leary through that is that um, first of all, each chapter title is based on a quote of his. So uh, if if you're Leary Fictionado, you'll pick that up real fast. Um, but if not, uh, that's okay too. Uh, so each chapter opens with a moment in Leary's psychedelic career that I thought really exemplifies and helps introduce readers to that particular crisis and the boundaries that were being crossed, right? So boundaries between science and spirituality, science and pseudoscience, recreational drug versus prescription medicine. Um, but the goal of each chapter was to show how it wasn't just Leary who was fueling the flames for this crisis. And I actually show the ways in which these crises were sort of rooted in larger social changes happening and also the ways in which other first wave researchers were doing a lot of the same things that Leary was doing. Maybe not always as extreme, um, but very similar, you know, they would um, self experiment with these drugs uh, for similar reasons as Leary. They were critical of the push towards randomized controlled methodologies. Um, They wanted to bring spirituality into the psychedelic therapy model. And then the second half of each chapter is looking at how researchers today understand that past crisis through their stories about Leary. I'd ask them, you know, why is it so hard for researchers to do this work today? And again, you know, things like, well, Leary had this terrible approach to doing his research. It wasn't very rigorous. And um, because of that, you know, there's this, this negative view of um, psychedelic science. And it gave this image of psychedelic therapy as based in pseudoscience. Um, so they'll tell these stories. And then I'll write about the ways in which they try to enact his antithesis. Um, but also showing how they mimic him at the same time, like I was talking about earlier. So that's that's sort of how I structured the book. And, and like I said, it really appeals to my OCD sensibilities. I don't know if it will for everyone, but I really liked it.
0: Well, I'll just say too to readers, uh, you know, that and listeners. I mean, I personally really dig that approach because you because you're juxtaposing the past with very contemporary debates, and so you. I think that. You, setting them alongside each other is something you don't really get very well uh, done in other books. So, I mean, I personally really dig it. I, I don't have OCD, but uh, I, I got to press a little bit further. You you make the case powerfully that not just LSD, but other psychedelics are going through different stages of legitimacy and legality in each of the chapters. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I suppose can you un- unpack this for listeners? How I mean, how does it play out in the end?
1: Yeah, um, and so legitimacy is a really tricky concept, and it's a concept okay. that sociologists love to study because um, it's so fascinating. And there's so many social dynamics underlying legitimacy. What counts as legitimacy? How do you get it? Uh, what effects does it have if you gain or lose it? And one of the thing that Things that scholars of science and technology studies have repeatedly shown is that legitimacy and credibility is for sure not automatic and given when it comes to anything, but especially science. And legitimacy is it's so slippery and fragile. And I think that that's really well evidenced by the case of psychedelic drug research, especially how legitimacy can be so easily lost and so hard to reestablish but the ways that that happens, the ways that we gain and lose legitimacy, however we're measuring legitimacy, um, that it's not based in objective factors, that it's very much shaped by the larger social and historical context. And so in the popular imagination, you know, I think we like to think of science as this value neutral realm. It's shielded from the outside world, from the social world specifically, And this is an image or, you know, an idea that we have in our heads about science that grants it a lot of credibility in the eyes of the public and and scientists as well. Um, But of course, science is a social endeavor and it's impacted by social forces. Uh, So in that way, it totally makes sense that psychedelic science has gone through these different legitimacy crises, because these crises reflect the context in which their work is situated. So a context that involves broader changes to what constitutes sound scientific methodology, a context where psychedelic drugs continue to be criminalized, a context where if we're talking about Western science and Western culture, where we don't have a good template for understanding psychedelic experiences in the way that uh, indigenous cultures do, right? So this this context really impacts things. the ebb and flow of the field of psychedelic science and its legitimacy, I think, can really be almost neatly mapped onto these contextual factors that have direct and indirect facts on uh, impacts on the fields. And I I do think that's an important point of the book, although maybe one that I don't always make the most explicit.
0: I have to ask about some of the -the behind-the-scenes work that went in the creation of this book. Uh, I'm, I'm always intrigued by uh, some of the stuff that maybe wasn't told in the book, uh,
1: mm-hmm. or that
0: hit the cutting room floor, so to speak. Um, do you do you have any gems or nuggets that you can share?
1: Um, okay, yeah. So one, well, one thing can just be in terms of the research process, because I, I didn't write this book out of thin air. (laughs) Like I I based it off of uh, gathering a lot of different types of data, like we talked about interviewing people. Um, And one of my favorite things was going to the archives and sifting through all of the papers uh, and documents that I found. Um, So there's the Purdue University psychoactive drug research collection, uh, which is a great resource. Um, It has an especially extensive collection for the Spring Grove group, uh, who were probably the most prolific uh, uh, you know, psychedelic therapy research team in the first wave, and they were in Baltimore, which incidentally is kind of a hub for psychedelic therapy research in the revival at Johns Hopkins. Um, but one of the the interesting behind the scenes things at the archives was when I was looking through the Leary papers at the New York Public Library. I mean, this guy saved everything, <laughs> so it's very so some stuff would be pretty amusing. Um, he had like this huge collection of birthday cards that like anyone and everyone had ever given him his whole life that would just be like in between, you know, like data that he collected for different projects. So I'd be going through folders and, you know, looking at, okay, so he gave this much psilocybin to this inmate as part of this project, uh, um, you know, where he was testing uh, the effects of psilocybin for criminal recidivism. And then there'd just be a birthday card from his daughter. (laughs) Um, and also he used to take research notes on the back of Howard Johnson paper placemats. They're just made, like notes about like, okay, here's my plans for this next psilocybin research project. Um, so, so that was, that was interesting. interesting, um, and, then, uh, apart from the research process, uh, just interesting tidbits from the history that I didn't end up fitting into the book. Um, but that I hope to write a paper about is the ways in which in the first wave of psychedelic uh, therapy research, they used to use LSD as a kind of conversion therapy uh, for homosexuals, which is a, a very antiquated pathologizing term that, you know, we don't really use anymore. But at the time, homosexuality was considered a mental illness. And so some psychiatrists used to give LSD to people as part of therapy to try to, you know, I don't know, shock the gay out of them. I mean, you know, which obviously yeah. is shocking to hear today and, um, you know, even disappointing. But, you know, in that context, this was a, a medicalized uh, diagnosable illness, um, which is also makes sense why we're not seeing that same kind of research conducted today. Because, you know, the social construction of diagnosis is such that it's no longer in the DSM. But that that was kind of shocking.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. So is that then the next big project on your horizon or do you have other multiple uh, balls that you're juggling right now?
1: Oh yeah, it never ends, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is uh, when I finished my book manuscript uh, like last July, so it's, it took a year between me submitting it and then it <laughs> being released. Um, It's a slow process. But uh, the day after I submitted it, I thought to myself, I'm never doing that again. Like, I'm never writing a book again. (laughs) And then a week later, I was already at an archive collecting data for my next book. Um, And so my next book is going to be about uh, the history of school-based drug education in the United States. Uh, So I'm really interested in looking at the changing logics that underlie drug education over the past 150 years and how those changes are entangled with, you know, larger political, cultural shifts that have happened regarding drugs and morality and health. Uh, So I already started collecting data from an archive for the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Uh, So they're a group that's really famous for lobbying against alcohol in the early 20th century. Uh, But they were involved in a lot of other social reform efforts, including uh, implementing temperance education in school or what we now just call drug education. Um, So I'm studying that and then I'm going to move through history up more recently to look at programs like drug uh, abuse resistance education, uh, which is something I went through when I was younger and sort of see, you know, what sort of changes have happened and why. And so uh, it, it continues my interest in drugs and how expert knowledge about them is produced, but it's looking at a new institution, so education. As opposed to medical science but i'm pretty excited about it
0: wow yeah no i can't wait to to read it whenever it's done yeah
1: uh, it we'll brilliant.
0: yeah right well, talk again. Yeah. no <laughs> rush no pressure
1: yeah okay good <laughs>
0: yeah before we go i just have to say to all the listeners that you absolutely should pick up a copy of acid revival the psychedelic renaissance and the quest for medical legitimacy it's engagingly written it gives you a wonderful blend of past and present, and um, it's fun. So I'd by all means recommend this. Um, and thanks so much, uh, Dr. Danielle Gifford, for spending some time with us today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Lucas. It's been a blast.